Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. And with businesses reopening and more summer gatherings taking place, experts worry that super spreader events will only increase the transmission of the virus. I recently spoke with Ben Lopman, professor of epidemiology at Emory University's Rollins School of Public Health, about the data he and his team are studying. We examined who is uh, who's transmitting this disease and how many people they're going on to infect. And what did you find? Our main finding is that we found evidence of super spreading. Super spreading is where one person um, or one event. Uh, goes on to infect many more people than the typical infectious person. Okay, Steve, let's, I've got a question for you. Let's, let's say we've met once in the past. Okay. You don't, we don't know each other, but I come up to you and say, Steve, I think you're making people sick. Some have probably even died. Mm-hmm. You're spreading disease. Are you a doctor or a health professional? No, I'm a civil engineer. Okay. But can I get a wee and poo specimen from you. I've got maybe two chamber pots, <laughs> one in each, or maybe just one. Are you doing one will be fine. This is getting weird. <laughs> <laughs> what would your response be? Look, you do look like someone I would trust normally, but that just pushes the boundaries just a bit too far. Okay. <laughs> well, our story starts in, in August and September of 1906. Six of 11 people from a wealthy household, a household by a person who owns it by the name of Charles Henry Warren, who's a wealthy banker. During the time of August and September 1906, six of the 11 people from the household become sick. They're diagnosed with typhoid fever. Unfortunately, this is a pretty bad diagnosis at the time. 10% mortality rate. The illness is a bit unusual that it's in a wealthy household because it's pretty much reserved for deprived people. It's in cities, that's fine, but deprived people, not of, not of wealthy standing. Mm-hmm. A vaccine is years away, 1911 it's developed. Antibiotics is 1948. So there's no treatment. You just have to write it out. If we look at that, he employs some investigators. Now, the investigators go through and say, we think it's contaminated water. One in particular also concludes, his name is George Soper, that it wasn't just contaminated water, it was freshwater clams. Hmm, that have been eaten. And not only this, George writes an article in the Journal of American Medical Association, JAMA, says it's freshwater clams that these people ate. Unfortunately, not all the patients had eaten clams, but that was his claim at the time. George Sober writes the article. Mm-hmm. Then, in 1907, another wealthy household gets people who are ill with mm-hmm. typhoid. This one was in Park Avenue at Manhattan. The other one was in, both in New York. The other one was in Oyster Bay in New York. George Sober turns up and said, this is unusual. Now, he interviewed all the people at the last one, There was a person who was a cook at the last place. Her name was Mary. She happened to be the cook 
also at this house where people got sick. And one person died. So at this time, her name was Mary Mallon. She was 41 years old. And he has a description. Yes, she was five feet, six inches tall, a blonde with clear blue eyes, a healthy colour and a somewhat determined mouth and jaw. So George then starts to dig and he finds that between the year 1900 and 1907, Mary was employed in many summer homes, many summer wealthy homes, of course. She worked for eight different families and seven of these families were struck with typhoid. 22 people were infected and some died. So George thinks this must be Mary. Mm. And he starts to stalk her. Right. So no one else had joined the dots with Mary at this point. No. George was taking this on and he started to believe that she was the cause. She was the infection. Uh, He particularly thought there was one dish that she would serve up, her Sunday special, which was ice cream and fresh peaches which he thought there was no better way could be found for a cook to cleanse her hands of microbes and infect a family. Is that because of the ice cream making process or handling the peaches maybe? (laughs) I don't know. Again, he he must have sort of said that must be the the source or somehow she was transmitting it and he thought that was the the perfect way. Hmm. So he actually presented these findings to, to Mary. He came up to her and said... I think you're infecting people. In fact, I think people have died because of you. He asked for a urine and feces specimen uh-huh. from Mary. And she took the same position I did, I imagine. She chased him away with a carving fork. Okay. I'm more <laughs> moderate. <laughs> so the, the thing that struck me about that is he must have been talking to her in a kitchen. Yes, yes. <laughs> it, wasn't a, it wasn't somewhere. So she must have had that at hand and chased him out of the kitchen, so to speak. She fled. But then George went and he convinced Dr. Biggs of the New York Health Department Mm -hmm. and Dr. Josephine Baker, a soon-to-be expert or advocate in the hygiene and public health field, that Mary was a public threat. They went around with five police to get Mary Mallon to have have a sample test taken. Now, it took them five hours, so she clearly she put chase to him. Goodness me. They did get her. They did get a sample. And it showed Salmonella typhi in her stool specimen. So after that, and the linkage was proven, she was then transferred to Riverside Hospital on North Brother Island. She was quarantined in a cottage for two years. And did they keep taking samples over that time they did they did so what they found is of 163 specimens taken 120 were positive wow it's at this point in the story when you read from the 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 medical sort of the the doctors and the the public health experts that they offered her to take out her gallbladder so they thought the gallbladder must be the source for this let's take it out mary refused and even later dr josephine baker wrote Uh, It was Mary's tragedy that she could not trust us. Hmm. At this time, this is uh, 1909, there is even a cartoon of her in the the newspaper. Of her, Mary, uh, Mary Malloy, or Typhoid Mary now, as she actually was called then, was with a fry pan, cooking, putting four eggs into 
uh, the fry pan or the skillet. But they weren't eggs, they were skulls. So this was all starting to happen. In 1910, her fortunes changed. A new health commissioner, who she had clearly written to, agreed to set her free. Mm-hmm. On the proviso that she promised not to handle food or to cook. Can I guess what happens? Three months later, there is two places where there are an outbreak. There's a sanatorium in Newfoundland in New Jersey and Sloan Maternity in Manhattan. 25 people infected, including doctors, nurses and staff, and there were two deaths. And the cook was Mary Brown, a.k.a. Mary Mellon. Wow. So Mary went back to North Brother Island, where she was 22 years in isolation. She had a stroke in 1932 when she was 63. Uh, She was transferred to Riverside Hospital, and she died six years later. Wow. That's a sobering end. Salmonella is on the menu. We'll come back in just a moment, and we'll look more closely at that key ingredient. When I first came here, they took two blood cultures and faeces went down three times per week, same Monday, Wednesday and Friday, respectively, until the latter part of June. After that, they only got the faeces once a week, which was on a Wednesday. Now they've given me a record for nearly a year for three times a week. When I first came here, I was so nervous and almost prostrated with grief and trouble. My eyes began to twitch and the left eyelid became paralyzed and would not move. I remained in that condition for six months. I imagine by now we've stopped eating, ready for the next part of this story. Going into salmonella, but let's define some terms. Travis, what is salmonella typhi? So salmonella typhi is, is an organism. Uh, it's a microorganism that we have. Uh, it was identified actually in, in 1880s by a German pathologist na- named Karl Eberth. Four years later, it was actually cultured by George uh, Gafke. The word typhus comes from, it's a Greek word, and it was actually coined by uh, Pierre Louis in, in 1829 when he noticed that these people that had this had something to the effect of a, a confusion. or a, so, and, and so the word comes from, it's an ethereal smoke or cloud that causes this disease, this confusion. And we know that in, in advanced typhoid, this, this cloudy consciousness. So what Carl Eberth found is there's a few things that I'll, I'll clarify as I'm going through. So all organisms we classify into a, pretty much a tree of what's related to what everything. Salmonella is a, a bit of a challenging one because there's so many different variants of Salmonella. In fact, there's over 2,500 what we call either serotypes or serovariants or serovar in that area. So it's actually quite a challenge diagnostically. Uh, it goes into a family called Enterobacteriaceae. And what we have is we call it, and this is a clarification, this is looking at the organism itself, it's a gram-negative And so what does that mean? That means that when we look at organisms, even these days, we classify it into gram-negative and gram-positive. And most organisms fit into that category. Some don't, but most bacteria, that is, fall into that. So this was just a very brief, you know, 
glance across, you know, the Graham stain was developed in, in 1880 by uh, Hans Christian Graham, where he started mixing uh, crystal violet, then iodine, rinse, and it, 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 it's all a... It's amazing that he came up with it. How do they actually do a gram stain? So the, the gram stain, you actually get the organism, you put it onto like a glass slide. You can fix it on the slide, but you don't want to melt it, so to speak. Uh, you put uh, crystal violet, which is just a, a chemical, uh, onto it. Um, that has a, it's a very purple appearance. They rinse it off. Then you put iodine on it. You rinse that off. Uh, then you put ethanol on it to sort of drain it out. Uh, then you put a counter stain on it, which is either um, fuchsin, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, I'll say uh, safranin because that's easier to say. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Uh, yeah. um, and then you'll look at it under the microscope. And if it's purple, what we call is it's gram positive. If it's red, gram negative. Why is that important? Because bacteria have a cell wall. And that cell wall is what keeps it alive. And so when we look at that, that is a huge classification of putting it into gram-negative and gram-positive because antibiotics can often target that cell wall. And then if it destroys the cell wall or makes it weaker, the organism will die. So we use it as a classification. It's also used for antibiotics. And it's, the, it's a pillar of microbiology. So we know that Salmonella typhi is a gram-negative organism. It has what we call a flagella on it which makes it able to move. So some organisms, if they're just there, they can divide and become bigger. Salmonella can actually transport itself to places in, in where it is. So we call it motile. And what we know now is that for Salmonella typhi, humans are the only reservoir. Really? So to get Salmonella typhi, you either have to have it from direct contact, which, again, if you're not already stopped eating, you will now, fecal to oral transmission so someone will pass something and then it will pass it on uh, or contaminated water from someone who has it mary must have been doing some very gourmet dishes <laughs> is all i'm saying at the moment well you see here's the thing hand washing wasn't a big thing uh, or it's it's all in the, the the time and and you know we will actually look at the sanitation of the time in a little bit but uh, so what we find is when we get to this point uh, looking at salmonella itself you have Two different categories that we put them in. Yes, typhoid and non-typhoid. That's right, that's right. And typhoid, again, fits into this one. So, And they're bloodstream-based, which means it goes into the bloodstream. So you'll eat, go in the bloodstream, and that's how it'll cause its problems. The other ones, non-typhoid, tends to be the one that we associated with, like, food poisoning. So beef, poultry, milk, eggs. You'll get gastroenteritis. It'll be for about a week. For most people, it's whilst it's very uncomfortable and not enjoyable at all, it's self-limiting, so people will actually get over it without any treatment needing required, unless they're very young, very or elderly, or you know, immunocompromised. Mm -hmm. So they fit into that area. We, we often what we call serotype it, um, so the outside of the, the capsule of the cell, uh, of the wall, we call it an O-antigen, and there's a H antigen for the flagella that you... Th so we actually send it off a typing because it's such a complex task. You actually have to have a specialised lab to be able to say. The, the significance of that is because there's so many, if there's an outbreak and two outbreaks at the same time, if they don't match, you can tell that's not from there because you've been able to type it. 
So when we look at typhi, though, as I said, it's a bloodstream infection. It causes fever. It takes about one to six weeks for it to come on. And we do know now that the gallbladder, particularly gallstones, can be the source for which the salmonella stay, adhere to, and proliferate, and keep on going into the feces. So that theory from 100 plus years ago of that connection has been borne out. It has. It has. So if someone does ever need treatment in this, there's, there's two antibiotics we use for salmonella. Uh, these are, you know, again, if a treatment is required, uh, that's azithromycin, uh, which is a protein inhibitor in the actual bacteria itself, uh, a 50S ribosome, so that the organism can't actually produce protein, it inhibits it, uh, and ciprofloxacin, uh, which is, uh, inhibits DNA uh, gyrase, um, which effectively stops the, the organism being able to coil its DNA and then DNA breaks. So they're the two treatment options that are the guidelines. So we do have treatment options now, should we need them. And from a preventative perspective, do you think post-COVID-19, better hand-washing regimes and attention to, to uh, hygiene is, is going to help keep uh, incidences at a minimum? Well, you see, salmonella is already uh, a notifiable disease, which means that if someone actually comes in with it, uh, it's a public health notification. So hopefully... Uh, but it's one of those ones where we keep an eye on it very closely already. Uh, so it'll go into the mix again. Uh, COVID's just a, a, another one that we keep an eye on. Um, but yes, it's public health area salmonella. Now, there's a few last things about Mary we need to uh, deal with. We'll come back in just a moment uh, so we can then wash our hands of this topic. <laughs> have been in fact a peep show for everybody. Even the interns had to come and see me and ask about the facts already known to the whole wide world. The tuberculosis men would say there she is the kidnapped woman. Dr Park has had me illustrated in Chicago. I wonder how they said Dr William H Park would like to be insulted and put in the journal and call him or his wife Typhoid William Park. Travis for some background here we've got Mary, typhoid Mary, the whole notion of typhoid. And we're worried about, you know, sanitation, hygiene in the kitchen. What was New York like at this time? We're looking in the 1900s. Uh, I think every city is, is struggling with sanitation in the industrial age. And if you look even at the photographs, you'll see rubbish strewn everywhere. Animals who have just died in the street and left there for weeks. Uh, it's been said that the first street cleaners of New York was a herd of pigs. Right. So, so it's, it is an age that is coming to grips with sanitation uh, and trying to clean things up. <laughs> and this is where we find Mary. So what's a little bit of food poisoning between friends? <laughs> Some of Mary's origin story would be fascinating, how she came to be that sought-after cook for the world to do in New York. Yeah, exactly. So she was uh, born in, in 1869. She was actually born in Ireland, uh, in Cookstown, uh, which turns out to be one of the... Ironic. The time, yeah, <laughs> one of the poorest uh, areas in Ireland at the time. Um, this was, chances are, education was poor, if at all. And we don't know anything about her, except for that at that point in time, when she was uh, when 14 or 15, she emigrated to the United States mm -hmm. uh, in 1883 or 1884. To try and put that into context, 
um, there was, uh, in the mid-1800s, there was the Great Irish Potato Famine. In the span of over 100 years at that time, 4.5 million Irish people emigrated to the US. Irish immigration equated to either a third or half the uh, immigrants in the US. I think we can see that that will cause its own problems, particularly when you get an influx. Uh, and there was significant anti-Irish sentiment at that time uh, going into it. Now, New York in around that time, 1880s, got its first Irish mayor. So there must have been some sort of getting enough representation going on through. But like most immigrants, uh, they would get the jobs that no one else wanted. They would get the things that were dangerous and dirty, uh, low-paying. The conditions they would live in, often they would stay near the docks where they actually arrived because most of their money that they had was getting there. So they didn't have any money when they were there. Mm-hmm. The males generally worked in the coal mines or the railways or the canals. Women often were servants or domestic workers. So we actually don't know much about her until effectively in 1906. It does make sense, though, from this background, her reticence to trust authority figures from the medical fraternity because I imagine she would have been living in fear of authority figures for most of her life. Well, yeah, and and the other thing is you would have not been probably the most welcome people there. You sit there and just you're getting the jobs that everyone else doesn't want. And a lot of GPs even today would be having different migrants who uh, have similar fears. Yeah. And again, this is not an area where there's social welfare or anything like that. It's look after yourself and so you will be fine the jobs that you can, otherwise you'll go hungry. Mm-hmm. And this is also an area where there's no housing, so to speak, with regards to who, where you would go. So you would get a job. My understanding is she had sort of menial jobs, but the evidence that we have is somehow she must have been a reasonable cook mm-hmm. because in 1906, we find her in a wealthy house as a cook. Mm-hmm. She must have been good at it, and it was probably a well-paid job. Wealthy family with a cook and probably better than most jobs you'd be able to get but then the problem is those people got sick and they're not the average new yorkers they were wealthy when we look at it the articles actually say and this is this is where it's a challenge some articles say she infected up to 50 people but i've read up to where she's responsible for 3,000. now i don't know how that would be Uh, I would certainly say I don't think that's correct. Mm -hmm. But then you get her encountering the medical profession. But did anyone actually explain to her what was going on? We think you're making someone sick, but you're healthy. You're not sick at all. How can you correlate the two? And I think what they've said is they offered to take her gallbladder out. But no one really knew about healthy carriers at the time. So this must have been a theory that said we think it's your gallbladder that's making everyone else sick, but not making you sick. Can we take it out? And she refused. That would have had to have been an experimental procedure to say, we think it's happening, or is it not? I understand you don't know. I'm not making people sick to begin with anyway, and you want to take out my gallbladder. It's a very, very foreign paradigm, isn't it, for a patient? <laughs> exactly. And so not only that, I think you can see that her behaviour is not... Look, unless you assume she's a sociopath... I don't think she understood. And the reason why she understood is she was isolated for two years, wrote letter saying how she'd been treated. She gets out after two years of isolation and goes back to cooking. Chances are she didn't have any other way to 
provide. Mm. She's a low-skilled immigrant worker who hasn't been doing anything for two years and just told you can't earn a living the way you've earned a living. How else would she get about? And then we have our man, George Sober, who looks like a man on a mission destined to find his woman with regards to this. During the time that she was isolated, until her death, over 400 carriers in New York were identified. Other carriers in New York. None of them were isolated. None of them were contained. There's even one person by the name of, name of Tony Labella, who caused two outbreaks, infected over 100 cases, and was responsible for five deaths. We don't know his name. I, I found it out through the articles. But yet we have typhoid Mary. In that, for 32 years she was isolated. Clearly they were able to bring food. And then in 1932, she is found on the floor of the cottage, having had a, a stroke. Don't know how long she was there for, having been on the floor. And then she was transferred, she never walked again because of the stroke, to Riverside Hospital for six years when she died. I think, from my perspective, this one's almost a failure of the medical system to protect the patient. It sounds like she doesn't understand what was going on. She's probably very low education. Probably the medical profession didn't actually know what was going on. They just knew making her sick. And I think history has remembered her as typhoid Mary. But Mary Mellon probably was a person who just didn't understand what was going on. And I would understand in that time that she didn't know she was making other people sick. The, the other statistic there is that we know from the CDC in 1906, there was 13,000 deaths due to salmonella typhi. In 1907, about 12,000. So clearly she's not responsible for them all. But we know her. We should let her finish this episode. In reply to Dr. Park of the Board of Health, I will state that I am not segregated with the typhoid patients. There's nobody on this island that has typhoid. There was never any effort by the Board Authority to do anything for me, excepting to cast me on the island and keep me a prisoner without being sick nor needing medical treatment. When I first came here, they took two blood cultures and faeces went down three times per week, say Monday, Wednesday and Friday respectively, until the latter part of June. After that, they only got the faeces once a week, which was on a Wednesday. Now they've given me a record for nearly a year for three times a week. When I first came here, I was so nervous and almost prostrated with grief and trouble. My eyes began to twitch and the left eyelid became paralysed and would not move. I remained in that condition for six months. There was an eye specialist who visited the island three and four times a week. He was never asked to visit me. I did not even get a cover for my eye. I had to hold my hand on it whilst going about and at night tie a bandage on it. In December, when Dr. Wilson took charge, he came to me and I told him about it. He said that it was news to him and that he would send me his electric battery, but he never sent it. However, my eye got better thanks to the Almighty God and in spite of the medical staff. Dr. Wilson ordered me Eurotropin. I got that on and off for a year. Sometimes they had it and sometimes they did not. I took the Eurotropin for about three months all told during the whole year. If I should have continued it, it would certainly have killed me for it was very severe. Everyone knows who is acquainted in any kind of medicine that it's used for kidney trouble. When in January they were asked to discharge me, when the resident physician came to me and asked me where I was going when I got out of here, naturally I said to New York. So there was a stop put to my getting out of here. 
in the supervising nurse told me I was a hopeless case and if I'd write to Dr. Darlington and tell him I'd go to my sister's in Connecticut. Now, I have no sister in that state or in any other in the US. Then in April, a friend of mine went to Dr. Darlington and asked him when I was to get away. He replied, that woman is all right now and she is a very expensive woman, but I cannot let her go myself. The board has to sit, come around Saturday. When he did, Dr. Darlington told this man, I've nothing more to do with this woman, go to Dr. Studdyford. He went to that doctor and he said, I cannot let that woman go and all the people that she gave the typhoid to and so many deaths occurred in the family she was with. Dr. Studdyford said to this man, go and ask Mary Mallon and inveigle her to have an operation performed to have her gallbladder removed. I'll have the best surgeon in town to do the cutting. I said, no, no knife will be put on me. I've nothing the matter with my gallbladder. Dr. Wilson asked me the very same question. I also told him no. Then he replied, it might not do you any good. Also, the supervising nurse asked me to have an operation performed. I also told her no, and she made the remark, would it not be better for you to have it done than to remain here? I told her no. There is a visiting doctor who came here in October. He did take quite an interest in me. He really thought I liked it here, that I did not care for my freedom. He asked me if I'd take some medicine if he brought it to me. I said I would. So he brought me some anti-autotox and some pills then. Dr. Wilson had already ordered me brewer's yeast. At first I wouldn't take it, for I'm a little afraid of the people and I have a good right for when I came to the department. They said they were in my intestinal tract. Later another said they were in the muscles of my bowels and latterly they thought of the gallbladder. I have been in fact a pipe show for everybody. Even the interns had to come and see me and ask about the facts already known to the whole wide world. The tuberculosis men would say, there she is, the kidnapped woman. Dr. Park has had me illustrated in Chicago. I wonder how they said Dr. William H. Park would like to be insulted and put in the journal and call him or his wife Typhoid William Park. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives when applicable can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there. And we'd love to have you along.